Hey, my name is Phil, and this is my wife, Meredith, and we are the pastors here at Cornerstone Church. We're so glad that you have connected with us here today and that you're getting ready to listen to a message that we know is going to build a resilient faith in your life. Right now, in this moment and in our days ahead, let's continue declaring Jesus over every situation. Enjoy the message. We are finishing our series, Battle Ready, today. We are on Battle Ready, episode five. So you can turn to Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 if you want to, and you can tell the person next to you, unimpeded. I know, it's a little bit of a big word, so you can give it a second try with your fa second favorite neighbor on the other side and tell them, unimpeded. When Phil and I were dating, he was uh, working a job where he worked for a nonprofit that he would fly back and forth between Sydney, Australia, and up onto this tiny island that's on the coast of Australia. And what was unique about this island at the time is that it was the first point that ships who were carrying people who were seeking asylum from all parts of the Middle East and Asia would arrive at. And they would begin um, to go through processing at that place. And he worked for an organization that would go up onto the island and run all kinds of different programming to help people while they were essentially stuck on this island. It was a desperate place, to be honest, because many of them had come under false pretenses that they would essentially arrive and be able to come straight into Australia only to arrive and find out that they were going to be stuck in these centers for months on months, some of them even years, while they sorted through and figured out paperwork. They had come to this place already incredibly desperate, and they were stuck essentially in a holding pattern, waiting, unable to work, unable to contact family members oftentimes, unable to, to reach resources that they may have had on the outside with mild, meager amounts of things that they had been able to bring with them, some of them not knowing anyone that they came with or some of them traveling with young, small children. It was an incredibly difficult place to be and Phil and the team would come in and they would um, run programs, sometimes fun stuff like game days and movie nights to help keep pe people's spirits high and give them something to look forward to. And other times they would run really practical things that would help them hopefully assimilate better when they eventually moved into Australian culture like English classes and understanding Australian culture and why Australians do all kinds of weird things that Australians do to help these people when they moved into that position. And I had the opportunity just before I moved back to the States to go and spend a month there volunteering as well. And it was an incredible time for both of us, even he has more stories obviously than I do, of all of the different things that you encounter as these people sat in this incredibly difficult, unexpected, desperate situation. One of the many things that I was confronted with so quickly is this idea, you know, in, in Western thought, well, let's say in Australian thought, because Americans probably don't do this, but in Australian thought, there is often a mentality that anyone who is wanting to move to our country must be wanting to come here because they hate their kind of lame country, and our amazing country is so fantastic that of course it has been their life's dream to come here. Now, Australians think that, not Americans, right? 
But what we were confronted with is that so many of these people loved their country. They would sit and tell you about what an amazing place their country was and how beautiful the country they came from was and what incredible people were in the country that they came from and the food that they loved there and the climate that they loved there and their family and their people that they loved there. But they were leaving their country because for one reason or another, their country of birth had become an unsafe place for them to be and so they were forced to leave the place that they loved so dearly and to sit with people who have come to a desperate place in life where they have loved somewhere that they have been and they have been forced to leave that place and are now stuck in a place that they don't want to be anyway but had to be is an incredibly heartbreaking, opening human experience to sit and have those conversations with people. And it's something I've been thinking about, which isn't the point of today's message, but as I have conversations with young people across our country, I believe that we are having a situation where there are many spiritual asylum seekers people who have grown up in places of faith, people who have grown up in homes that taught them a love of God and who in their deepest core still have a love and an admiration and a longing for the things of God, but sometimes were not handled properly, sometimes came to people who didn't always know how to respond to difficult situations, and for one reason or another, the spiritual place that they love and they long for for so much has become an unsafe place for them to retreat to, has become a place where they feel like they cannot be taken care of and their only answer has been to leave from that place and to try to find safety somewhere else. People of God, this should not be. We should be the safest place that people can run to the safest place where they can come in their most desperate moments, the safest place that they can run to when their heart is breaking and they are desperate and searching for what to do. And while we were on Christmas Island, we found all of these people with heroic stories and heartbreaking stories of what led them to this place. But as you can imagine, if you're stuck for month on month in essentially a detention center where you're not allowed to leave and you're not free to move around, our normal social habits tend to deteriorate pretty quickly. And you could tell pretty quickly who'd been there for more than a week or two because they had gone to not changing out of sweatpants ever. Many of you experienced this during stay at home. Right, Their hair had not been done in weeks and in months. They logged around and maybe popped into a session or two. They, we tend to move into chaos and disorder when we don't have some of the general pressures of life helping to push us into what it is that we need. But there was one man who made such an impression on me. He had been a medical doctor in the country that he came from, and he found himself stuck for several months in this same situation as everyone else. But instead of letting his life begin to deteriorate, instead of letting his mind deteriorate and his physical presence deteriorate and lean towards all of the chaos and laziness that all of us are prone to, every morning he would get up and he would put on khaki pants 
and he would put on a, a button-up shirt, and he would put on a belt and tuck in his pants. And every Monday morning when we released the schedule for the week, he didn't decide what classes he was gonna participate in just based on where he happened to be that day or if he was around. He would show up on Monday morning with a notebook and he would sit down and he would look through the list of classes and he would create a schedule for himself for the week. And if we had any extra reading materials available, he would come and he would say, what can I swap out this week? And he would create time slots for himself in between the other classes of when it was that he was gonna do his own independent reading. And he kept himself in a way that reminded people of who he was before he came to this moment. Sometimes in life, you have to do things that remind yourself of who you truly are, regardless of the circumstance that you find yourself in. And somewhere inside this man, he found in himself a way to remind everyone that he wasn't just a drifter that happened up on the shore, that he wasn't going to be stuck here forever, that there was something in him that was greater than the situation that he found himself inside. I want you to keep that in mind as we look at our final verse today. As a reminder, we've been reading through Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10 through verse 20. If you can turn there, you can read along with me. I'm gonna remind us of this entire section that we've been looking at. Ephesians 6, starting in verse, 20, in verse 10, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is the last week, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all of the saints. And also for me that my words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul is here at the end of his letter to the church in Ephesians, and he has been encouraging them and admonishing them in the way that only Paul can for chapter on chapter, and he gets to his final push, his final thoughts, and you know this if you've been here for several weeks, but I know that some of you haven't been here in the last few weeks, so let me remind you that as he gets to this final push and this final crux, he has this message for them to stand, 
Stand therefore, he says, and then having done all, stand. Stand again. And we talked about the fact that this standing is not a standing of attack. It's a standing of defense because Paul is reminding them and is telling them that they are standing in a place and they are standing in a way that they are already victorious, that God has already claimed the victory on their behalf, that Jesus has already given them everything that they need, but there is a very real enemy, an enemy that comes with a desire to steal, to kill, and to destroy, to take from them what has been given to them, what has been purchased on their behalf. So he reminds them to stand, to defend, to guard the place that God has given you, to guard the home that God has given you, to guard the spouse that God has given you, to guard the friendships that God has given you, to guard the work that God has given you to do, to guard the place of rest that he walks you into, that the enemy wants to come and he wants to steal from you with sleeplessness. And the enemy comes and he wants to steal from you with purposelessness. And the enemy comes and he wants to steal from you with vision in godly meaningful relationships do not let him get even a foothold Paul says stand therefore having done all stand and guard this place and he reminds them that God did not leave them without defenses that he did not send them to a place of defense and into a battle unprepared or unready but that he has equipped them with spiritual armor. He has equipped them from head to toe. He has equipped them in every spiritual way and that the majority of the equipment that he has given them is defensive measures until he finally gets to a sword that is the spirit of God, that is the word of God, that there is a sword that he has given you. And you should use that sword led by the spirit built in his word to cut through every lie that the enemy throws your way, to cut through every plan of the enemy, that he comes at us with a desire to uproot the things that God has planted in our life. And the only way to come against him is not to try and outwit him, is not to try and outsmart him, is not to try and outstrategy him, but is to bring out the sword of the spirit that you have been given in the word of God and to bury it deep in our hearts and to cut off every lie and plan of the enemy with that sword. Paul says you have not been left defenseless. You have been guarded from head to toe and you have been given a powerful sword. And he wraps all of it in prayer. He says, pray at all times and pray for everybody and keep praying the prayers of supplication. Let's be a people who are wrapped in prayer and who are leading with prayer and who are seeking in prayer and who are understanding in prayer. He says, and be praying in the spirit. It's why we pray every time our life groups meet. It's why we pray at the beginning of our services. It's why we pray on Tuesday mornings at 6.30. It's why we have teams that pray all throughout the week. It's why we are a people of prayer. And when Paul tells them to pray, he says, pray in the spirit. 
pray in a way that is led by the Spirit, not led by your own thoughts, by your own desires, by your own what seems good. I think the enemy of every God idea in your life is your next good idea. Do you know how many times I've had a good idea that makes a lot of sense and seems like it's really gonna work out and so I run after my good idea and the thing about my good idea is it looked good enough that it didn't cause me to pause long enough to say, is this really a God idea? Pray in the Spirit. Have you ever been praying and had the Spirit stop you from praying what you're praying? That's what praying in the Spirit often feels like. Because we start praying what we think we ought to be praying. This weekend I was praying something and I heard God say to me, why do you keep praying that? Because sometimes we're praying things that sound like out of our own humility or out of our own desires. Prayers like, God, if this is it, then that's fine. I'm happy with that. And prayers of contentment are important in our lives. I think especially in our highly commercialized, highly capitalistic North American lives. Yes. But sometimes what we do is we go into our place of prayer and we pray what sounds like a holy prayer to us. And God's like, I have more for you but you won't come to me and pray for more because you've convinced yourself that the holiest place you can be is satisfied with this. And this is not my everything for you. And so God says to us, what are you praying right now? I've heard myself start to play, pray blessings over people and God wants people to be blessed, but there are sometimes situations that he cannot bless. And I've heard the Spirit catch me times when I start to say, God, bless this. And he says, I'm not blessing that. Do not say what he is not saying. Are you being led by the Spirit? And I don't know about your prayer life. I just know about mine. If I have not been cut off in the midst of a prayer in a little while, it's probably an indicator for me that I am not praying in the Spirit. I am praying in my own mind, in my own understanding, and in my own desires. Are you being Spirit-led in the way that you are praying? And we prayed last week for those of us who haven't yet received a spirit language to be filled in afresh with the spirit of God and to begin to pray prayers that connect with the heart of heaven. And I want to encourage you and to implore you if you haven't yet experienced that with God, to keep seeking him, to find members on the team to pray with you, to find time when you're at home to say, God, I want to experience everything that you have for me because there is a power and there is a connection and there is a deep and I have walked through time and time in my life where I say God I don't even know what to pray about this anymore because it seems so complicated and it seems so every which way and I can't find a right way or a left way and all I know to do in those times is to pray in the spirit and let the spirit pray on my behalf so if you haven't experienced it yet keep hungering and keep seeking after God until it opens up for you. Pray at all times and in all ways. And he gets to verse 20. 
And it says, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This idea of an ambassador. Paul calls himself an ambassador, and at other points throughout the New Testament, he refers to all of us as ambassadors of Christ, as those who are sent. When you think of an ambassador, I don't know what the images that come to your mind are, but for me, I think of images of grandeur. And I think of those who are well decked out, diplomats who are sent into foreign lands and those who are given great authority and great influence and great power. Paul says, this is who we are. We are ambassadors on behalf of Christ and he sends us everywhere. He sends us into foreign lands and he sends us into our neighborhoods and he sends us into the grocery store and he sends us into our workplaces and he sends us into schools and when he sends us those places, he says, I don't expect you to walk in there like just anybody else. I expect you to walk in there like a foreign ambassador who has been sent on behalf of the God most high. You are an ambassador who has been sent sent on his behalf. This is what ambassadors do. Ambassadors are sent on behalf of foreign dignitaries to go into a land that is not their own, and when they are there, they have the ability to speak on behalf of the leader of the place that they came from, on behalf of the country that they came from. You are no longer citizens of earth. You are no longer citizens of the neighborhood that you live in. You who find yourself in Christ are no longer citizens of this country or citizens of the country of your birth. Those places matter in earthly conversations, but you have been brought into a higher place and you are now first and foremost citizens of heaven. You are now first and foremost citizens of the King of kings and of the Lord of lords. It's why we believe in having a church that represents every age and generation, every tribe and every tongue, every color and every background because my first identifier is no longer that I am a white female millennial who was born in the United States of America. Those things are part of who God has created me to be. But my primary indicator in life is that I am a child of the God most high, that I am a citizen in a heavenly place, and that he has given me authority in heaven and on earth, and that he has sent me somewhere to speak on his behalf, to proclaim on his behalf, to rule on his behalf, to create a relationship and connections with those that is a primary responsibility of an ambassador the primary one of the primary responsibilities of an ambassador is to go into a foreign land and to create relationship and connection that allow the influence of that country to be furthered in that place why is it then that the people of God are abandoning our influence, are abandoning our connection, are abandoning our places of relationship all over the place? He has not called us to be those who retreat and lock ourselves up inside of our sacred places and do no harm and do no influence and do no connection and do no relationship. He said, I have sent you as ambassadors 
An ambassador's job is to go into that place and then say, okay, who are the key stakeholders in this country? Who are the people of titled authority in this country? And who are the people in this country who have passive authority, who have the real maneuvering ability? And how do I build relationship with them so that I can use that influence to further the influence of the country I have been sent on behalf of? It is your responsibility to be building relationship, to be building connection, to be creating bridgeways where God can say, I have influence for this country. I have resources for this place place that I have established you. You are an ambassador who is sent there to speak on my behalf, to rule on my behalf, to create influence on my behalf. People of God, I wish that you would see yourself when you walk into a place, not as just Joe somebody like anybody who walked in, but as an ambassador in the heavenly places. You have been sent with authority and you have been sent with power and he sends them and Paul reminds them. I am an ambassador. But then he throws in this paradox in chains. Now, one of the other primary things that you get if you're an ambassador is immunity to like pretty much everything. I got this incredible privilege when I was in university. I was studying political science at the time, and I got to go on this trip where we went over to Europe and toured a bunch of different, uh, like major cities throughout Europe to learn about their different forms of government, and it was an incredible trip. And on that trip, we got to go and visit the home and offices of one of the foreign ambassadors, and I remember walking in that place, and I was like, I could do this job. This is cool right here. And then they told me that ambassadors get immunity to like basically everything. And I'm not really a law-breaking person, but I thought that's nice to have in your back pocket in case you need it someday, you know? And so Paul tells them, he says, I am an ambassador in change. What is Paul doing in chains as an ambassador? And he begins to walk this picture out for them that though he has the authority given to him by Christ, he also finds himself in chains. And Paul is speaking to them quite literally. He is not metaphorically saying, I have bound myself to Christ. He is literally writing to them from prison. He is in chains in prison. Now, something to understand is that there were a couple different kinds of prisons that the Romans used at the time. And different to our prison system, the prisons were not considered a means of punishment. They were more a form of a holding cell until your punishment was given to you or until your trial would happen. So the first kind of prison is probably what you think of when you think of a prison, what I think of when I think of a prison, right? It's a cell block and they are chained to a wall. It's like the prison that Paul was in when he was imprisoned in Philippi. You know, in that Philippian jail and he and Silas sang all night and the prison walls came open, you know it. That is the type of prison he would have been in there. They used another type of prison which was underground and there would be a floor over top with a hole in the center, and essentially no one was chained in these most of the time because they were just dropped into the hole and they wouldn't have been able to get out. 
This would have been a very short-term holding cell. Most of the people held in this form of prison were waiting to be executed. They would have only been there for a matter of days or potentially weeks before they were brought out and then taken to their execution. And then there was a third time type of imprisonment that was used commonly throughout Rome, and that was a house arrest form of imprisonment. This is the type of imprisonment that Paul most likely finds himself in at the time. He finds himself imprisoned in a home. There would have been a rented home that Paul was staying in, and he would most likely have then been chained to a guard that rotated in and out. And when they changed out, they would change out the chains and connect him to someone else so that he couldn't leave, but he had a relative amount of of freedom, although he was still trapped and stuck inside of this place. And this is the type of prison that Paul finds himself in. If you look in Acts 28, at the very end of the chapter, Acts 28 and verse 30, it refers to Paul's imprisonment. It tells us that he was there for two years and that while he was there for two years, he welcomed anyone that would come to him and he continued to talk to them about the gospel and to instruct them in this new way of living in the life of faith in Jesus. And Paul stayed in this place, but how did he get there? Well, what is most likely the occurrence is that Paul came to visit Rome and he brought with him a friend. His friend who came with him was from none other than the church in Ephesus, the church he's writing to right now. And the thing about the church in Ephesus is that it was largely a Gentile church meaning these were not people who were brought up in the Jewish custom and in the Jewish way or of the Jewish genealogy. They are a whole new group of people. Most of you and I would be Gentile. And Paul is going and is taking to them the good news of Jesus, but when he brings his new Ephesian buddy back with him to Rome, the Jews in the area who had become part of the way were still having trouble with this new thing that God was doing of bringing people groups together, and they became in an uproar, and it was unsettling what they were doing, and they brought accusations against Paul, and because he didn't use the influence that he could have of being a Roman citizen, and because he didn't fight them on it, he just went into his imprisonment. He finds himself under house arrest for over two years. For over two years, Paul, our traveling missionary who covered all over the place declaring the good news of the gospel is stuck in a single place. And what could have been his greatest obstacle turned into one of his greatest opportunities for declaring the message of Jesus and continuing the work that God had given him. Though Paul could have been stuck by the fact that he found himself confined, though he could have been stuck by the fact that he found himself inconvenienced, though he could have been stuck by the fact that he found himself with limited resources, though he could have been stuck by the fact that he just found himself frustrated. Have you ever found yourself in a space where you're just frustrated that this shouldn't be how it is and I shouldn't be dealing with what I'm dealing with right now and I was just trying to do the right thing 
thing and the right thing turned on me. He was just trying to bring this new young convert with him to expose him to some new things and to disciple him and train him. Paul was making the right steps and it turned on him. Have you ever just been trying to have a conversation with somebody and it turns on you and all of the sudden you find yourself in a conflict that you didn't realize you were getting ready to walk yourself into? Have you ever just tried to adjust the way that you're seeing your finances and you decided that you were gonna become a person who was committed to your tithe but you didn't know that making those budgetary adjustments in your life was gonna so unsettle your social group? You didn't realize how connected they were to all of the spending that you used to be doing and it throws something in your life. Paul was trying to do the right thing. Have you ever just tried to do an update so something would run better and it knocks out the whole system and the screen doesn't work all day? Have you ever just been trying to do the right thing? And that frustration of why am I even in this position? Why am I even dealing with this issue? Why am I even having this conversation? Why am I even looking at this scenario? I think Paul would have been well within his rights to sit back for two years and say, I've done my work. I've served my serve. I've showed up a lot and it's tired for somebody else to show up, apparently because I'm gonna sit back for the next two years. And I'm gonna be sorry for all the extra that I output and I'm gonna be sorry for everything that I've done and I'm just gonna be frustrated and in my funk and I'm gonna at least put a pause on what I'm doing right now. And I wonder if he would have done that if he would have ever come back from his pause. I think so many of us over the last couple of years have said I'm gonna pause what I'm doing for a second. I'm just gonna take a breath for a minute. It seems like I've been sent home, so I'm just gonna stay in my home for a minute. It seems like I'm confined by an inconvenient situation. It seems like the situation of my life has changed, and so this must be an indicator that it's time for me to take a pause, and I would just ask you, do you realize how long you have paused for? It's easy for two months to turn into 12 months, and for 12 months to turn into 24 months, and for 24 months to turn into five years, and for five years to turn into the rest of your life. I wonder if Paul would have paused, would he have ever come out of his pause? But instead, what we see in Paul is a tenacity, is a desire, is a hunger, is a, a, a forward facing that says, if this is where I am, then this is what I will work with. In spite of every opposition, in spite of every reason that he could have, in spite of every reason that it made sense that he should just take a time out, Paul says, I am going to press on even more. And this moment of opposition for Paul turns into an incredible moment of opportunity. Do you know that as a Roman citizen, 
Paul had the right to receive a daily allowance while he was under house arrest, meaning the government would have paid for him to have food and basic needs while he was under house arrest. But Paul refused that because he saw himself first and foremost as a citizen of heaven. And so if you look in Acts, it says not that he was sustained by the Roman government or by the emperor, but that he was sustained by the people of God, that they supported him, that they brought him gifts, that they took care of him, that they sent him everything that he needed. Paul found an opportunity to gather the church and to connect with them and to lead them even further still in their heart and in their need and in their desire for generosity, though he found himself incarcerated. And above all of that, it is most likely that four of the Pauline letters that we read in the New Testament were written during the time that he found himself imprisoned. Four of the letters that were sent from the place that he was. Paul didn't have a cell phone to call the churches. Paul didn't have a live feed to set up in his imprisonment and continue his church services. But he had letters and he had people who came and visited him and would take those letters and would deliver them to the churches and would read them out and would explain them. And those letters became part of what for centuries and generations until right now we are opening up in our Bibles and reading over and saying this is what the understanding, this is what God meant when he said that. This is how we're to live out our faith. This is what our relationships in the church are supposed to look like. This is what God meant in those different spaces. All of that came because Paul was in this place of confinement, because Paul was in this place where he had to sit, because Paul was in this place that he never wanted to be in in the first place. My point to you is that the opposition that you're looking at right now might just be the opportunity for the biggest thing that God wants to step you into. Yes, Paul could have gone to the churches, but if he would have gone to them and spoke to them he wouldn't have written it down and if he wouldn't have written it down you and I wouldn't have had it today to read over what is it that is constraining you what is it that is pushing in on you what is it that you are frustrated about and complaining about this shouldn't be this way and I shouldn't have to deal with this thing and all the while you're wasting the opportunity for the thing that God wants to press you into yes you find yourself bound in chains yes you find yourself tied up in an inconvenient place yes you find yourself restricted yes you find yourself impeded but I'm telling you that this is the opportunity that God has been setting you up for for a next level of declaring his goodness for a next level of speaking into your purpose for the next level of reaching another generation for the next level of demonstrating his generosity you are unimpeded by your natural circumstances because the war that you're waging is not a war of physical things and the war that you're waging is not a war of flesh and blood so those physical walls can't impede you and those chains can't impede you those of our church who are in prison that space can 
cannot impede you. You can encounter an everlasting God right in the middle of that prison. You can have a revival of his spirit right in the middle of that place of being locked down. You can experience his power and his presence in fresh ways, even though you are locked in and even though you are shut in and even though you are in a hospital bed and even though you haven't been promoted and even though your degree didn't work out and even though your bank account's not working out and even though gas is higher than you thought it and eggs are higher than you thought they were, maybe it's an opportunity for you to discover something new, to flourish in the midst of a desert, to speak out his goodness, to declare of his hope in hopeless situations, to speak of his joy when it seems unending. You are unimpeded by the circumstance you find yourself in. Because he is an everlasting God. You can stay standing because then Paul says that I can declare it with all boldness. He says, help me to declare it with all boldness. And that word boldness, it means unrestricted, unrestrained, fearlessly and with great courage. And it has in it this idea that even against socio-political opposition, that I wouldn't shrink back in fear, but that I would stand with boldness and declare the name of Jesus. Not tactlessly, because I'm an ambassador of the King, but with clarity, with confidence, and with boldness that I would continue to declare the name of Jesus everywhere, in every situation, in every circumstance, in every relationship, and in every season, that I would have great boldness. As we finish this series, I just wanna pray a prayer over this church today that we would be a church of boldness, unimpeded, unrestricted, fearless and with great courage, that whatever comes, it would be said of us that we continued to declare Jesus in everything. God, you are the author and the finisher of our faith. You are our beginning and our end. You are our alpha and our omega. And God, we surrender all to you. We say we put our lives in your hands. We put our hope in your hands. We put our faith in your hands, God, knowing that you are good and faithful and that he who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it. God, I speak over this church that you would help us see ourselves as you see us. God, I speak against spirits of timidity. I speak against spirits of fear. I speak against spirits, God, that would cause us to shrink back, God, and be less than you have called us to be. And I declare that you have been equipped on high, that you have been given a full armor of God from the heavenly realms. I declare over you that the principalities and powers are afraid of you. When you wake in the morning, when you rise your head, they say, here they come. 
those who have been equipped from on high, those who pray in every situation, those who have stood their ground, those who stand and stand and stand some more. God, that there would not be a gap in us, that there would not be a space in us, but that we would connect ourselves with the hearts and the will of heaven because we are a people of the Spirit, led by your Spirit, God. And I declare over you today, as ambassadors of the Most High, that your situation will not impede you, but that you will declare him with all boldness, with all boldness. Come on, somebody say, all boldness. We thank you for it, God. God, we thank you for what you've spoken to us over these last weeks. And God, I ask you that you deposit it deep inside of us, that it rise up in the moments when we need it, that we don't leave it as a thing that we've done and move forward, God, but that it be planted in us, in our hearts, in our lives, and in our minds. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen.